This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 503, for April 13th, 2016. Welcome back to folks who are not afraid of the number 13. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld, and there's nothing to fear from numbers. Is that right? Susie Oaks, executive editor of Macworld. Uh, that's correct, Glenn. I, uh, what is it? Triskadex, Triskadecophobia. Is that the fear of numbers? Triskadecophobia? Triskadecophobia. Yeah, it's the fear of 13. Uh, oh, the fear of 13. But it's okay. usually Friday the 13th. Um, I'll point out there's a, uh, there's a popular, uh, calculator app available on all platforms by James Thompson, a very nice fella who's a Scott. And, um, he has the number four. Peacalc, right? Peacalc. And he has yep. the number 42 is his logo. And he recently simplified it and got a lot of, um, Strangely negative reviews about simplifying his logo, and then he got a app really store. Yes. people on the internet had opinions. I know, isn't it weird about how things <laughs> about look? something? And then he got a review Were on the app store it? that said uh, said um, the number forty two is uh, a number that's disliked in many cultures, and you should be thinking about it. Something like that. And we're like forty two. in China, there's a number. There's several numbers in China that are considered bad luck, and so you know, in the U.S., yeah. we have thirteen. And maybe seven, sometimes seven is good luck, sometimes it's bad. Uh, you know, there's famously uh, Jennifer Eight Lee, the writer, her parents named her mm-hmm. with a numeral, which is a eight. She's a, such a great writer. Ah, she's terrific. And uh, her middle name is Eight, the numeral Eight, which with is a period good, you know, after it. So every culture has these. And apparently, uh, you know, I didn't know about 42, I knew about other numbers in uh, Chinese culture, and that's one of them. So my uncle bought a house, and the house number was 444, and he was married to a Korean lady, and she was like, You're going to have to change that. Oh, yeah, four is and a they terrible. And they had to get the number, they had to get the house number changed to 446 or something otherwise yeah. like she was like no i'm not gonna live there i'd heard yeah four is sort of like isn't it in, uh, generally across asia four is considered a bad luck number so 14 but that's rock and roll man 42. I, know. Four. I know four 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 not like six six six. Oh, i said it <clears throat> i was in oh like deep into my 20s i think before i finally realized that like they were skipping the number 13 in tall buildings i mean i'm from like a small town so we didn't have any there buildings, no buildings that got over that five tall. stories but yeah like i my i finally like noticed that my office building and then i noticed you know but like big hotels and when you're on the plane like the rows on the plane go from 12 to 14 and i was like really everyone like they don't still i, do I that, get do they? that there's a superstition but it seems weird that like we're you know designing buildings in airplanes around that. Wait, are there still no row 13 on planes? I don't know about this. I'm pretty sure the last, yeah. Oh, some airlines have it and some don't, but there's often no row 17 in Lufthansa planes, Mm. which who knows what that has to do. It's, uh, oh, the unlucky number is 17 in some other countries like Italy and Brazil as opposed to 13. Fascinating. You should name every row after a Beatles song and then everyone would be happy. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, this is uh, this is how we uh, grow. You know, there's actually a thing, a, a tradition that's really cool, that's um, very quiet, which is when they cap a building, when they're building it, a lot of the early uh, people who worked on skyscrapers were, I think they were Swedish, if I'm remembering right. And um, there are pagan traditions that persisted in Europe long after Christianity. And this isn't just like the burning the tree, the Yule log thing. There's stuff that was deeply hidden. There's some very interesting cultural things around that. And so in in America, at least, when skyscrapers are topped, they put a tree on the top. So this is not when it's finished. It's when it's actually when they finish the top of the skeleton, they put a tree on for it's sort of a sign of good luck, but it dates back into uh, 
uh, ancient times. Like just uh, for a little while or forever? Yeah, it's part of a ritual. It's kind of, it's oh, okay. I think it's like when you cross the equator on a Navy boat, there's all kinds of rituals involved rubbing the fattest sailor's stomach and all kinds of hilarious <laughs> things. It's very interesting. You don't hear about it much, but it's true. Um, and if you'll notice that actually, if you look at- um, We could do a whole podcast episode on Oh, this. strange. And if you look at cranes, there's cranes all over the place, right? For building yep. in most cities. Now, look at the top. You will often see a tree or something yeah. tree-like at the top. That's why. Oh, Paganism. I thought those were like for Christmas. No, no. It happens. Sometimes it happens around Christmas. They decorate it, but they often put a tree up there as part as a good luck thing. It's like this won't fall because it's a tall tree. Huh. And there is your, there's your mythology lesson for the day, folks. Uh, speaking of mythology, uh, <laughs> the government likes to believe in certain kinds of myths about oh, encryption. Oh, good segue. <laughs> like I had it planned. And uh, like we do apparently every week from now, you know, for the last several months and forever, we have to give you an update on the security situation. Then we'll then we'll talk about some other things. We'll talk about hardware this week. We're going to talk about uh, Smile software and text expander pricing. Uh, we'll talk about 3D Touch, something Jason Snell wrote for us, and also pencil and handwriting recognition, something that Dan Morin uh, wrote for us. So we have other topics. We're going to lead with security because these are the things that affect us most directly. Hey, so Susie, the FBI uh, still working. They still got they still got their uh, ideas out there, even though they said we're cool with San Bernardino. I mean, you want tenaciousness to be a quality of your law enforcement, um, you know, organizations. And the FBI is certainly being very tenacious. Um, they've given up on the San Bernardino phone, as you guys know. But um, they filed, a, well, they sent a letter to the court in, in the Eastern District of New York last week. And if you'll remember, so that was, uh, there's a phone that was belonging to a meth dealer. He later pled guilty so the investigation is more or less over. His case is in the, the sentencing phase, but they still want to break into he has an iPhone 5S running iOS 7 and they want to get the data off that just to make sure there's you know nothing in there that would be useful for them in trying to figure out how to sentence him. So not a terrorism case and not, you know, an ongoing investigation like people's lives are at stake. Um, you know, obviously, like drug dealers are connected to, to lots of other stuff and you know his phone could uh yield evidence in other crimes but different than the san bernardino case right and they were like you know terrorism san bernardino like we gotta get it so but none of that applies to this new york phone and judge ornstein in new york who's um some might call him an activist judge um he <laughs> had already ruled in apple's favor and said like look the all writs act is not you know is is inappropriate here and they're using it too broadly and, you know, that they don't actually need Apple to do this anyway. And, you know, Apple doesn't have to to help them. Um, the weird thing is that Apple used to do iOS 7 extractions for law enforcement kind of whenever. Um, and, and that's part of the government's argument in the New York case is like, you used to do this for us. Why don't you do it anymore? But Apple's taking a hard stance against all Ritz Act warrants. And they're saying, look, like, write better legislation. And, um, you know, and, and, and they will Apple's stance hasn't changed. Um, their lawyers say, like, we'll still do this, but under a few conditions. And the New York case doesn't meet any of those conditions. Uh, and one of them is that, you know, you really need us to do this. There's lots of other security firms that'll do this. Um, whoever helped them with the San Bernardino phone, um, the New York phone would actually be an easier phone to get into. Um, because it's running iOS 7, so it's not encrypted by default. So there's actually ways to extract the data without even knowing the passcode. 
Um, in the San Bernardino case, they needed to, they, they wanted to be able to brute force the passcode because that was the only way to unencrypt the data. And that's not the case here. So the government is, you know, confused that Apple used to help with this kind of thing and now they don't want to. And Apple is saying, huh. like, no, we don't like these All Writs Act warrants. And the first judge sided with them, but now, you know, there's an appeal. So the government sent a letter saying, like, okay, we're still waiting. Um, we still need to get into this phone. The case isn't moot because of, you know, what happened in California. Right. And so, um, yeah, so Apple is going to respond this week, um, they said they'd have their briefing in on Thursday, and then there might be a couple more rounds. I'm not sure if the hearing has a date yet, but there will be hearings in the New York case. And uh, so man, that was another public case. That's but then um, the ACLU has been following um, more cases under seal, and they're trying to, um, you know, file, uh, you know, they're trying to get these court documents unsealed so the general public like us can see just how widespread the government's use of the All Writs Act really is in these cell phone cases. So they're trying to go through all 50 states and find as many cases as they can where the All Writs Act is being used to compel Apple or Google to unlock smartphones because the government's saying, you know, we like we know we don't do this very much, but you know these these cases are are important or special or anything. And the ACLU is like, no, you guys do this all the time. So yeah, hundreds of times if they're doing it. Well, I remember the, the thing that broke uh, years ago that uh, changed the way in which people thought about cellular networks revealing location information was um, Sprint had created a kind of self-serve thing for law enforcement in which a full warrant process wasn't required. They could mm -hmm. kind of ask for it under the right circumstances. And it wound up being used a vast number of times. And Chris Segoyan, who is now one of the lead people at the ACLU following this privacy stuff. And uh, he was he's at, uh, yeah, he's terrific. And uh, he had, uh, he worked at the FTC for a bit and without, uh, he attended a session in which the sprint thing was discussed at some conference and it wasn't under non-disclosure. It's just everybody else there was like in the industry. So he wrote about it and disclosed it and it completely transformed the discussion. And I think the same thing here, we're seeing the All Writs Act, uh, you know, once we realize how it's being used, uh, you know, I want to back up one second too, is that um, I think, uh, I, I won't speak for you. I know that my opinion, I think uh, a fair number of people share is that we all want um, the FBI to be able to use all legal and available tools to solve crimes and, mm -hmm. and also the police force. We want them to follow legal judicial processes and use things that make sense and fit within the constitution. And if they have a hack, I'm totally cool with them using a hack to break into a phone. I don't want the phone to be broken for everyone. But if a hack exists and they can use it, they sh you know if they had done this differently, they could have kept it quiet, used it on some hundreds of phones, and then disclosed to Apple and said, okay, now it's too dangerous. We need to make sure this is repaired. We're losing our opportunity. But they approached it in this whole other way of like wanting to have a, an internal backdoor that's impractical. And now they're being hostile. We have this hack. We're not going to reveal it. So Apple is working like mad to try to engineer from what little bit's been disclosed what they're doing. And I think I think it's just a totally misguided public policy because I think they'd have the FBI and the Obama administration would have much more support if they said whenever we have a tool we can use, we're going to use it, but only for a limited time to solve you know the stuff we have on hand and then we're going to disclose as appropriate to protect all Americans and the world population, including people in dictatorships that we're always talking about how we're trying to get them secure solutions for them to be able to keep their thoughts private. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of inconsistency there. Yeah. So the the new phone is in Boston, and that was the one that um, 
that the ACLU um, was able to unseal the court documents. It the but it didn't. It seemed like the warrant might never have been exercised. Like the the court did issue oh. a warrant um, on February first, and the order was good for for two weeks. But it's unclear if, like, if the uh, government ever eggs exercised or something. the warrant. Or Make not. sure and use yeah. those warrants before they go bad, because yeah, right. Um, yeah, and that's good that they put a they put a date on it. So there's there's a lot of um, you know this 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 whole battle is not going away anytime soon. And now there's you know there's a new city where we're going to hear about about this other court case. So yeah, we'll keep an eye on it because it does affect everybody. Well, and meanwhile, we have uh, something that was threatened has actually occurred, which was that uh, two senators, Feinstein and Burr, that's Burr, B-U-R-R, you may have heard the name recently in other contexts. <laughs> apparently, I don't think a Glenn relation. Glenn has fiber internet and he likes Hamilton. I know. <laughs> These are our new <laughs> podcast <they're>, teams. <laughs> I think there's a lot of room to grow in that podcast space. Uh, so Burr and Feinstein introduced a, uh, this is a Republican and a Democrat, uh, introduced a bill that was, you know, allegedly is going to solve the encryption problem by uh, essentially breaking this encryption. This is what for- Apple wants. Apple wants Congress to come up with like new legislation. But, but not this, this bill not is this bill. terrible. Every, everybody hates it. It's extremely, yeah. it's, inco- it's an incompetent bill. The whole bill. internet just laughed and well, laughed and laughed. Things like someone posted a tweet the other day and said, under this bill, this tweet would be illegal. And what it was, was like five lines of code that produced a result that the person who posted the code would be unable to decrypt. Uh. So that's illegal. I mean, this is where you get, into, <laughs> you get towards the thought crime end of things. Um, it's a terrible law. I haven't seen anybody anywhere say anything positive about it, including the Obama administration has signaled they will not support this bill either. And it's either. a draft. Like it's a, a draft. It, it leaked. And then the next day they released it as a they – they call it a discussion draft. So they're like, oh, we're just you know we're just starting the discussion. It's just so, – uh, yeah. <laughs> it hasn't made it out of committee. It hasn't been voted on. It's not going to become law anytime soon. It's like a first draft, but it's terrible. I, and it just – a lot of people were like, wow. Like, it, I mean, I know we need a new law, but this just shows that these people are not qualified to like make this law. No. And they, they so, defined it as like it's provide such information or data to such government in an intelligible format. That, which intelligible format doesn't make any sense. They define it, but it's like if it's been made unintelligible by some other entity, they have to make it intelligible. I'm like, well, it's a nice end run around, uh, you know, our entire constitutional history and hundreds of years of law and modern technology. But, you know, excuse me, what it is. <laughs> That's the only response. It's like it's stinky. It's stinky. Someone was like, it's trying to legislate magic. Like oh, it's trying yeah. to. <laughs> You show us. Well, you know, hey, if we're in the Harry Potter universe, you can put tracers on underage magicians to uh, track uh, witches and wizards. And uh, unfortunately, you can't do it. Yeah, there is no golden key. I mean, this is what will eventually, I think, penetrate the consciousness of everyone. And it may take years and years is that there's no, uh, there is always a double edged sword. And we keep talking about it here. So I don't want to bore listeners, but it's people know now. I think listeners to this podcast are all. You know, of course, uh, handsome and beautiful, wise and uh, well-spoken. So you, you already know. But uh, it's just uh, – it's a, it's, a, it's a burr in my side. Not, not That's a B-U-R lowercase burr that people who have uh, power and ostensibly intelligence, even – I mean smart people in uh, government or in leadership positions elsewhere. Um, but you're not finding anybody in industry basically except I think AT&T, maybe the cell companies um, – who want to support the notion of unlimited decryption of everything on a government order. And it's just, I don't know, just especially at the time when we're seeing, uh, you know, you look at the Panama Papers come, comes out and uh, we see disclosures of how 
the system is being gamed, and this is the fourth largest law firm of this type, right? So we know this isn't the biggest one. It doesn't include documents from Delaware and other uh, places that uh, have a kind of anonymous company uh, incorporation and allow people to hide assets um, and move things around. And we see how the, the game is stacked worldwide, and the, the idea that uh, we should be allowing governments unfettered access is just, I don't know. Yeah, so the draft bill says all persons receiving an authorized judicial order for information or data must provide in a timely manner responsive, intelligible information or data or appropriate technical assistance. So basically that means any end-to-end encryption wherein like you, the user, hold the keys and the company that has your data like can't access it because they don't have the keys, that would all be illegal. And that would be such a step backwards for like everything, for every industry, for everything that uses technology, which is everything. And especially now when we're putting technology into everything, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm driving around a car right now that GM loaned me so I can test the new CarPlay features. And this car is like really high tech and, you know, it's got computers and it has Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and, you know, I don't want it hacked. And so (laughs) there's, you know, like your house now, like everything. So like it's this would be a bad idea anytime, but especially like today in history, like this is such a terrible idea. But, you know, if we get all the stakeholders together and we get, um, you know, we they they write something better. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's also I think there should be a flip side is I actually think what's funny with this whole debate about allowing the government, you know, access on demand uh, under, you know, let's say in the best case, like only we're not going to see extra constitutional use, blah, blah, blah. That That's like, you know, that's the demand. Like, let us see anything we want to when it's judicially approved in America. Like, I forget about the rest of the world. Um, the flip side of that is that we are allowing technology be developed. This is my transition. Watch this. This is a segue. We're allowing technology <laughs> developed without any requirement that consumers are protected or businesses in any fashion from uh, bad design and bad cryptography or encryption that protect their stuff. So 135 million vulnerable routers. Did you see this story? This is wild. Yes, that uh, is a lot of vulnerable routers. Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, researchers identify that the Eris surfboard SB6141, which is available in uh, a bunch of different kind of configurations. I've actually heard of that router. Like, Oh, it's a very popular <laughs> one. Yeah, it was it was a really common, and I think it's still being sold. Uh, so the issue and is- And I don't it's, follow routers. So for me to like already be like, oh yeah, the surfboard, like that's a popular router. It used to be uh, Motorola, if I remember right. They sold right. it, uh, sold the brand off. So the researcher identified, he believes, it's about 135 million. Eris has said it's um, it's shipped 175 million uh, uh, surfboard modems, but that a much smaller number would actually be affected by this, and it's already working, you know, with cable manufacturers or whatever. These routers asp- apparently cannot be updated unless uh, because the carrier provided ones. Uh, these routers cannot be updated unless the carrier pushes the update. So some equipment you can buy, like I had a cable modem that I bought. Now I have a modem that I can't update because it comes from my uh, telco, but I had a cable modem oh, that yeah. I bought. That's why I always buy my own. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. And this I actually, I should it. say, I bought the modem. I'm not leasing it. I, I got it from them and I actually have administrative access. So sensibly, I could, I probably can upgrade the firmware on the thing I have. But uh, uh, So wait, what's the problem with these modems exactly? It's the... a couple different things. Uh, they can be, if uh, they're remote, uh, they can, can be, be remotely, remotely reset. reset. Yes, and you can wipe out the internet provider's settings, and then they are essentially unusable without the settings being reloaded by the internet provider. So it's essentially like a remote wipe, and it's just a, it was a cross-site scripting uh, error, I believe, which means that you can send a command that 
uh, shouldn't run. It should be blocked because it's trying to execute a command that isn't a local command. Anyway, it's a very, it's a long, it's a it's something that's been known um, as an issue for many, many years. And anything being any firmware code being written now should be tested against it, and it should be blocked. There's no reason for it, uh, and it should be straightforward. So. You look at this. There is no regulation in America that that specifically prohibits or, or protects against this. The uh, FTC chair, uh, she spoke in uh, I want to say it was January 2015, gave a, a, pre- a keynote at CES talking about this upcoming issue of the Internet of Things. And you know, cable modems aren't exactly, but they they're kind of. I don't know if they're, I don't think they're counted in the IoT because the IoT is small devices with discrete purposes. But internet, uh, broadband modems, and other stuff that's in your house that does something as a discrete function is certainly adjacent to that ecosystem. And uh, the FTC did have an action against the company recently that it felt had failed to provide proper um, security and mm-hmm. uh, you know had plenty of warning and understanding it didn't take care of it. But there's no like law and there's no even uh, co- uh, industry certification policy that requires. Uh, testing certif- and certification to show that you're using best practices. So we're kind of, you know... That would be kind of cool. Like the waterproof ratings and stuff, there could be like a security rating. Yeah, and you know, I the mean, thing the is, EFF does that a little bit with some products, but not with everything, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, this came up... Uh, I learned about this years ago. I'm not in the hacking community. We have to bring in Rich Siegel or, or uh, Jonathan Zdarsky. Get him back to talk about it. But, you know, there's this thing, pen testing or penetration testing. And uh, that's a sort of a large term. But one of the subcategories is called fuzzing. And I learned about this when uh, some researchers found some significant flaws in Apple's uh, Wi-Fi software, where if you had local access, like you were within range, even with a long-range broadcasting antenna, of someone's Wi-Fi, you could send malformed packets that, even though you weren't connected to the network, would cause it to crash or give remote access or whatever. With fuzzing, there's software out there that uh, sends a an enormous amount of crap, basically. It tries all sorts of stuff to see what breaks software. And so you send a bunch of different kinds of common stuff over URLs. You send garbage. You send a massive amount of information at once to see if it overflows buffers or it can't keep up. You outstrip the processor. These are well-known techniques. You can hire companies to do it. You can get free software that uh, that does it, that's constantly developed. And I, I feel like there should be a protocol uh, or a, a regular, not a regulation, because that might be too strict. We might do the wrong thing, have the wrong effect and require backdoors and other things. But the industry should be stepping up to a way to say that this IoT or remotely accessible internet device that's on a consumer business network, or you know, let's even say consumer, right, or small business, has passed these tests and we fuzzed the heck out of it and uh, you know and we're good so that we know that you if you just picked up a common piece of software like Metasploit is one of them and ran it it wouldn't break like that should be a baseline that the software in the field if run to if it exploit a given piece of hardware would not break the hardware and I don't believe even that is tested and there's certainly no process for it. Um, so what it'll mean is that somebody malicious could go out there and just brick millions of routers for people. That would be mean. Yeah. Well, on the flip side of this, though, there's uh, WhatsApp, and we talked about this briefly last week, and um, you can read a column I wrote uh, since then on Macworld.com explaining the difference between what, what WhatsApp released uh, last week for its network of apps uh, and what Apple's doing. So WhatsApp is now kind of the best example that's in the widest use. It's not the best example in the world, but the best and widest use for a messaging system for text voice and video that and file transfer that um, is the least 
possible for an outside party of any kind to break into. Uh, and if such a break-in happened, if there was a man-in-the-middle attack, then uh, end users would be notified or be able to spot it with a validation step that they can perform. And I wrote about the validation step in the article particularly. And um, this is a place that Apple, you know, with all the changes they're making, this is a time for them to step up, right? They're, they want to create more impregnable security that's more reliable, mm -hmm. and they could take some lessons from uh, Facebook's WhatsApp division. Yeah, and what they have now is pretty good, but you just, you don't get that extra, like, you can't verify. Yeah, I mean, you don't know that the other party is who they say they are, except by believing that Apple's system could never be compromised. Um, and uh, the other part, though, is this forward secrecy thing is a big deal. It's like if someone, let's say the NSA is out there recording 100% of all iMessages on every network it's tapping. And then a year from now, they figure out a way to crack the old keys, they could decrypt all of that back stuff with forward mm -hmm. security, especially if it's done correctly with perfect forward security, but in forward security in general, the keys are destroyed. So typically there's the same cost to break into any message session um, as opposed to breaking into all previous message sessions. It doesn't do you any good to break one key. You have to break one key per session. And there usually aren't generic attacks that allow that sort of behavior. So WhatsApp uses a, a variation on that that's not perfect, but it's pretty good. And each message back and forth has a unique key. There's a message key. Um, so it's about as secure or about as uh, a good an implementation of that as possible. Um, so that's... That uh, sounds great. It's kind of cool. I like the interface too. I was just messing around with it. And it's like they have this thing. If you're next to somebody and you start a message, you can both bring up a QR code and you and whether you're using iOS or Android or whatever mobile app or mobile platform, and you can one person scans the other's QR code in the app and it confirms that the fingerprint of the two public keys that are being used is accurate. Or if you're remote, you could call and talk to someone by phone because here's the thing. Phil Zimmerman told me this years ago. He's the inventor of PGP. He had this thing called Z-Phone a number of years ago, and he said Z-Phone had the same thing, the out-of-band element to confirm that no one's listening in, that you both have each other's public key, and there's not someone in the middle you know, standing between you who's handing off data back and forth. Uh, if you speak numbers aloud, there's no way to uh, – like, I mean, you know my voice – you're not going to suddenly hear someone else, oh, yeah, hi, Susie, the number is 5732. <laughs> You're going to go, oh, wait, Glenn, was that you? Yeah, that's me. The number is 73. Um, so, and it can't be done live either. There's no way to predict when someone's going to start talking and insert it into the conversation. So actually, right. even on an unsecure phone line, being able to read a series of numbers to another person is considered a relatively effective way to validate something. I mean, you ha if you don't know the person's voice, but you have to have a conversation first, you have to make sure that you're talking to the person you think you are, too. So there's all those things. But um, I like that validation step. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, well, so props to Facebook because they are not the company that I, you know, associate with like a huge emphasis on privacy. No, they agreed on security. <laughs> so, they, and they acquired WhatsApp and they've, you know, been making it more and more secure since then. So good for them. This is why I keep talking in my, my voice, uh, talk about private eye as security, privacy and encryption because those are, I mean, they're totally related, right? Pr Facebook can be terrible about privacy as it relates to uh, what they want to do from a corporate standpoint for advertising. And the same thing in mm -hmm. Europe. Like Europe has extremely strong privacy laws, but they do not, so they can protect you from corporations and they will work very hard to do so, but they don't necessarily protect your privacy from governments in Europe. That's yeah. a whole different thing. And in America, I mean, so Facebook, 
they're very good about user privacy from other users, and they're very good about security encryption. And they have a the, at Facebook proper, they have some pretty kick-ass people who advocate for that kind of personal secrecy and security. And WhatsApp is a good extension of that, which is totally separate from hey, let's show you ads about crowd that you don't want because <laughs> we want to sell stuff. Let's, yeah, let's I guess go. it's just kind of a you know an end user perception sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they get lumped together and it's, uh, you know, like Apple is really good about a bunch of, I mean, they, Apple, because of how they position themselves, tends to be good about privacy and some security, but their encryption is a little weak. They're, I mean, I keep reading stuff and talking to researchers. They need to step up what they're doing there. Um, they're, they need to upgrade a lot of stuff that's going on and this should be the impetus to do it. Speaking well, with Facebook, I mean, the data that we're giving them and like that's their sweet gold, you know. <laughs> so oh, yeah, yeah. And they're they have a very from... vested interest in keeping that like keeping it super safe so like they can use it, but you know, no one else could get it. It's ex exactly it. Um, and speaking of upgrades, we should talk we're going to talk briefly about hardware, then we're going to go into we have breaking news from Smile Software as we record this. Uh, but a quick update on hardware. So uh, my wife wanted to get an iPhone SE, and apparently everybody else in the world wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I did not think that would be a big deal when we talked about it a week or two ago. I was like, yeah, just go to the Apple Store and get her a phone. And you're like, no, it's not It's not that easy. Yeah, we tried ahead of time. And then uh, within a day or so, we were like, we couldn't get it. We couldn't get one on the Thursday or Friday. They were for sale. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, keep checking back. And then every time I check, it's like there's no stock anywhere in the country. And the back order online is uh, was two weeks uh, a few days ago. Um, I think it's a good sign. Like I want this phone to succeed because I think it's great to have this in the lineup. It's sort mm -hmm. of a bummer because you're thinking, didn't they it already have be supply constraint? Because yeah. like they've made this phone before, so if, the, if it's this... hard to find, that would indicate to me that there's strong demand for it. But I mean, I'm not a. I have no idea. Like really, because. I'm not privy to that kind of information. No, I can't but. believe they underestimated demand. I think they just, I, I wonder, I mentioned this on Twitter a few times. And a couple of people said, well, look, people will just wait. It's not urgent. It's also not a flagship. So it's like, you know, it's not available. It'll come. I'm like, I, you know, you're right. We're, we're in a situation where we want to, as I think a number of people can be, is we want to trade in the old phone. Uh, Gazelle mm -hmm. is great, and I've used them before, but I want to get on the Apple. I want to get on the uh, iPhone upgrade plan, which you can't do with the iPhone SE unless you do a trade-in of a previous phone. So we may only get 50 bucks for her uh, iPhone 5, um, but, or 5, I think she has a, uh, yeah, she's a pre-fingerprint uh, version, so uh, pre-touch ID. So we won't get that much money, but we can sign up for the Apple plan. That's where we'd like to be. Uh, so we have to wait for the stock. If, it, if we didn't have to go to a trade-in, we would have ordered it and, you know, had it this week or next week, and it would have been cool. So I guess I'm just stunned that they didn't ramp it up and have, like, 20 million units ready to go, because why not? Because they got the, the, uh, uh, manufacturing lines are basically good, right? Yeah, because some <laughs> of those weird studies that, you know, like Slice and stuff that look at people's email receipts, and, and they thought that it wasn't selling that great. But like you said, it's they're hard to find. So, yeah, maybe they didn't make as many because they thought it would be a bigger thing overseas than here. Or who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird, but... So it's a nice phone. I hope you get one soon. Keep waiting. I've I'm been using, like, I've finished the review, and I've still been using this phone. Um, my colleague Flo over at Greenbot has been doing um, camera tests with the flagship Android phones versus my iPhone 6S. So she keeps borrowing it, but then she keeps like giving <laughs> it back to me and being like, oh, here, don't you want your phone back? And I'm like, nah, it's fine. Oh, funny. I mean, I'm still making payments on it. So <laughs> it's the same. I mean, yeah, she it's can't funny. keep it, but I've been using the SE and I love it. I don't really miss 3D touch that much. We're going to talk about that in a little while. And yeah, it's great. 
I, it's in uh, all my pockets. I'm amused by the whole thing because I think people, I, I think, I mean, John Gruber, I think, talked about that too, where he tested one uh, and um, found himself not that like strongly pulled back to his bigger phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's. I think it's great to have options, and I think Apple is sort of refilling that matrix in a way that lets them keep it. I refreshed. thought it would be really hard to go small again because I've I had the six too, so this is my second big phone, and no, no problem. <laughs> it just seems so tiny to me. Every time I touch my wife's phone, I'm like, well, "Who made this? Is made for for tiny for giants yeah, touching this?" I don't know. It's uh, cute. And uh, the three and a half would be too small. We had a uh, yeah, that's true. Bad. We had a little news about. Um, the a watch about the the talk to the watch's tick is a, a watch two potentially coming out in the uh, but not in the near future right it's not it's it's not close um, the rumor was uh, from Ming Chi Ko who's uh, usually uh, an analyst and mm-hmm. um, often quite accurate and this analyst is reporting that um, that, that there would be a new version at the end of this year so like I guess holiday twenty sixteen. Wow. Um, but it wouldn't be a redesign. It would just be like a component refresh, so kind of an S version of the Apple Watch, which would be interesting because I can't think of too many other like first, you know, S versions of the first model of something. Like the the first iPhone didn't get an S version. Exactly. The first iPad didn't get an S version. You know, like they were released kind of minimum viable products and then they were immediately redesigned and much improved in in the second version um so if they just you know gave it a faster chip or whatever i don't know like what what they would do but um yeah it would have a they would they would maybe try to get it oh a better wi-fi chip so it could connect to wi-fi on its own and not have to you know go through your phone for that that would be nice. Um, I don't think you know it's going to get GPS or cellular. No, yet. can't not yet. I mean, unless yeah. there's unless they have some secret project going in that would be dramatically in advance of. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's Apple, but I mean, they could they could push things forward faster than we realize if they have something super secret and quiet going on that really <laughs> just. I guess, Wish they could. I know it's it's hard. Radio space is. It has a very different development cycle. Like you can push these secret chips and get faster processing and do a lot of stuff. In that way. Like, I don't think we heard anything about the coprocessor chip. Yeah, and they can chip. make their own chips, but they're right. not making their own, like, GPS but radios. When the first uh, when the first coprocessor chip came out, I forgot when the, which model, the M uh, coprocessor with the uh, Apple's A-series chips. I don't think that was – I forget if that was predicted much ahead of time. Like, that's okay because that's, that's sort of technology that's known as part of the system on the chip and so forth. But, like, radio stuff is really – it requires – Constant ongoing development. The improvements are generally incremental within big leaps that are known because people have been working on them for a while. So, mm-hmm. I what this report know. didn't mention is smart bands, which I feel like, I mean, we were calling that as maybe one of the things that would be announced at the March oh, yeah. event that maybe they'd roll out the smart bands because there is a little port if you take off the band of an apple watch and you peek in the little like groove that it leaves behind there's a little tiny port in there and they could you know that could that could do power data or something so they could roll out bands that have you know additional sensors that has a camera that has more battery and they could make that a third party thing like you know the smart connector like apple's like oh we'll do one that's ours and then you guys can use it for for other designs but yeah they didn't they didn't mention that at the march event so maybe that would come out you know one of the fall at the fall events or something i don't know 
Uh, it reminds me, too, of the fact that on the sort of anniversary-ish of the first watch shipping, uh, I have seen so many negative Apple Watch stories. I know. And, I mean, you know, we've talked about it on this podcast. I sold mine months ago because yep. I discovered I wasn't using it. it it's just the, the apps are too slow. The app selection uh, hexagon thing is ridiculous. Our honeycomb thing is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I, I don't use that. I'm not finding compelling things. App developers made a big effort to get stuff out there. Uh, watch OS. The I don't big, use any apps either, yeah, but big, I use my watch all the time. I use it every day. I use it for a ton of like little things mm-hmm. that all sound really stupid when I list them off, but like together aggregated, they make a really useful device that has wormed its way into my everyday life. And if I don't have it for a day, like if I forget it on my nightstand, I'm really bummed. Like it's like, it's not quite as bad as if I forgot my iPhone but it's like, oh, I'm not going to get, you know, activity credit today. I might miss some text messages. I never miss a text message anymore. I used to miss text messages all the time. But is it is it 350 or $400 worthwhile if you weren't oh, a Mac, yeah. I mean, I'm Apple so cheap that probably not. Yeah, and, that, and that's where it comes back to is like for – it's – you could uh, – the util- so you have the utility factor. I never found it to be that useful. I know plenty of people who find it – to be very useful, but it's so like utility useful. to dollars. If they weren't in the Apple world or they didn't have you know, the money where they're like, I can just spend this. This is my luxury item. Um, you know, actually, it's funny. You should read Marco Armand's piece about uh, it actually sucked him into the analog watch world. It's like a gateway. Yeah. It's like this it's Apple a gateway watch. gateway drug, you know, right? I, yeah, it's all these geeks like me it's who like, hadn't What watched, else can you show well, me? <laughs> we hadn't watched. You know, I haven't worn a watch really for much of the last me 20 neither. years, right? And so a lot of people got in the habit of wearing a watch. They're like, huh. I could have something on my wrist. That's an interesting idea. What else? Yeah, exactly. What else could you show me? Uh, Oh, sir, excuse me, ma'am. I have uh, anything for literally any price you have. I have a thing for you. I mean, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of things that people spend money on that I would never spend money on. So maybe this would be like a thing that I would spend money on. Like, it's 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 hard to imagine how you're going to use it. Like, if you're just like thinking about it and you look at, you know, like you look at Apple.com or you go try one on or whatever, it's hard to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get $300 worth, you know, out of being able to not miss text messages and, and set timers for my wrist and, and you know, like but, change the track of the, of the you know, fast forward my podcast while I'm driving without having to like get my phone out and unlock it and things like that. Directions while walking or fun. I mean, there's Directions. lots of, it just, it doesn't add up to the dollar unless you don't care what the dollars cost. But I mean, like, I, you know, I don't play video games mm-hmm. and I don't, you know, I don't really go to bars anymore. Like there's, it's, it's just, there's so many like trade-offs and, and I think that for me, yeah, I probably did get the money's worth out of it. Like I didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> I was That's... able to, my, my job provided me one since I write about it quite often. But yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I don't know. We're, we're working on a couple of responses to the, the pieces that we've seen because we think that, um, you know, it's, it's a great little device. I really it, like it. it I'm is, excited they, to see what they do with it next. And I get why a lot of people are like, you know, not yet. Because it is still early. Like the next one's going to be better. The one after that's going to be even better. So I think they're going to get more compelling over time. But what's here has made a big difference for well, me. I'll highlight what you said, which is you don't use apps. And that to me is the fascinating nope. part. As a device I don't use sold, the apps or the app right, screen at all. As, sold, as a device sold. And the complaints I'm seeing are basically all from people who are discussing the app side as opposed to the uh, like – uh, adjunct to phone side, including activity tracking. Like a lot of people like activity tracking, watch faces, 
ability to swap uh, watch faces and complication, you know, edit complications, uh, timer, Siri, uh, remote, you know, even the remote control notifications, features. Yeah. Notifications, yeah. I do everything with notifications, complications on the watch face. Everything that's and not. Every once in a while, I don't even really use glances that much. I use like three of the glances. Yeah, everything that's not about apps. And I think that's, you know, that's a problem. And well, so, I keep thinking I should get more into the apps, but then every time I try, I'm like, oh, these are No, terrible. it's horrible. I mean, and so they're not, and so d- based on the hardware, if the hardware is a limitation for the apps, which it probably is, there's a limit of how fast yeah, they can run. Yeah, it's so slow. Then, you know, it's your, this Apple's going to be the same situation. You know, we could argue this is like the first three generations of Apple TV. The watch is a hobby. They didn't pitch it that way, but it really is more like a thing you get if you're really tied into the system and you want to try it or you... It scratches a particular itch, but it doesn't feel like the mass market item that an iPhone developed into. So we have to see what the next one is like. Yeah, um, it's definitely, it's an, it's an enhancer. It enhances your iPhone experience. If you have like adjunct. Apple Music, like, you know, suddenly it's on everywhere. It's on your TV, it's in your car, it's on your wrist. Like, so things like that. Like if you're really into the Apple ecosystem, it can enhance that experience that you're already like pretty invested in. I just find it disappointing Right. So definitely. And that's the thing. I feel a lot of the tone is I'm reading essays from people who still so some people are like, I forgot well, to put it on. They wanted it to be like, you know, as cool as the iPhone but wearable. And yeah, it's like, and it, but they're yeah, people who, who like it. They don't oppose, they don't think it's bad hardware. I mean, I didn't think it was bad hardware. It's great hardware. Uh, I thought it was actually enjoyable to wear. I thought a lot of aspects of it were great, but like the updating is bad and it's like everything about the software side is bad and it's not gonna get better until new hardware, basically. Yeah. Um well, speaking of things being bad, getting better. Another segue. This is segue day. Uh, so let's talk about Smile and Tux Expander. Breaking news as Breaking we record this podcast news. on Tuesday. News just in over the wire um, that will affect Maybe we should Maybe discussion. we should back up a little bit. Oh, yeah. Say, we'll like, talk about the uh, what the situation was first. But there's breaking news that will change what we were going to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so Smile makes Text Expander, which is a macro-ish program that does uh, things like lets you type in a few keystrokes and expands it into a bunch of text, and it can use um, placeholders and paste the clipboard in where you want it and do system things, run Apple Script on a Mac. Um, it can correct spelling. You can load a dictionary. It can type emoji. If you uh, type a shortcut, it'll put the emoji in for you instead of having to use the emoji selector. Um, it's a very, very useful, neat thing, and it has a you know the tradition that goes back to word perfect or before like macro programs i think go back to the 1950s basically when people were trying to save having to type long commands with short ones and yeah, things you type over and over and over again they'll yeah, type them for you it's pretty huge so um you and i both wrote about this so i think it was like with three articles like you wrote the news i wrote a like uh where does this fit as a so oh yeah so text expander was a standalone product sold for many years with you know regular flat price and some licensing for large organizations and uh, reasonable upgrade fees every year or two they'd have an upgrade. I just upgraded to version 5 like a week before this whole thing happened and it was yeah I think I'd bought it for like 45 bucks or something and then the upgrade was $20. Yeah, so very that's reasonable right. but not not like you know a $2 like clipboard app or whatever like not you know a cheapy little Mac App Store app like it's you're still paying like what I thought was like a pretty good software price, but not, you know, it's not like a $400 like enterprise level app either. It was, you know, right in the middle. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's, they are a very, Smile is a really great um, small software company that's been around for a long time. They used to make a disc labeling software. They still have a PDF, PDF pen, uh, which I use uh very regularly. The iOS version is great. Um, it's one of those apps that lets you scan and uh, do OCR and, uh, 
uh, edit PDFs on in iOS, and their Mac version is also terrific. So really always like their products. And Text Expander was more expensive than competitors, but they you know they sell themselves on completeness and thoroughness and uh, It was just updates. the gold standard. Like it has yeah. so many cool, I mean, it still does. It has so many cool bells and whistles and then they add that the go beyond the, like kind of power user things. But if you're only really using it to like, you know, expand your email address and your like street address, then yeah, like, a, you can if, get a $5 utility that'll do that. But yeah. this was like, this was the Cadillac of texts, you know, expanding utilities. It'd be hard to get someone to buy it outright unless they really understood the utility. But if you already owned it, the upgrade cycle was perfectly fine. So I didn't mind yeah, spending 20 bucks. Yeah, they kept making bucks. it better. It was, it's really great. Yeah, and the last version, Texas Expander 5 added cloud-based uh, syncing. So before, I think you could only do it with Dropbox. They were using Dropbox's API or something. And then they uh, expanded it so you could use iCloud and Dropbox and other services uh, without having to... Um, uh, it gave people much more flexibility. So it was great, right? So, I don't know. Do you want to talk about their introduction of a subscription... Uh, they're kind of doing the Adobe Creative Cloud thing where instead of doing, you know, big version upgrades and saying like Text Expander 5, now Text Expander 6, like, you know, and, and doing big chunked versions that they're just going to do. It's going to be a subscription. And there's two subscriptions. There's the Life Hacker plan for like regular users. And then they have like a enterprise pro plan or whatever if you're doing this for a business because there's a there's a really good business use case. And I think their new site does, does a great job of, you know, providing examples and testimonials from business clients saying like, oh, yeah, I have all my developers using this and we share code snippets and our code is a lot neater. Or, I have all my customer service reps doing this and we can, you know, change the, you know, script for a customer service response and everyone has the updates seamlessly and that's great. So yeah, because so now that it's a subscription, you have to have an account and then all your snippets are stored on their servers. So that makes them easier to share and it keeps them, you know, all updated in every place if you're sharing. But the problem is, I mean, I'm just one person and I don't want to share my snippets and I really don't need them uploaded into a cloud. Like they can be stored locally if I want to get them on iOS. I've been using the Dropbox sync and it's been working just fine. And so, yeah, I mean, besides the fact that, you know, people have to pay a lot of monthly fees for different software and that's always, you know, that's a chance every month to be like, am I really getting my money's worth out of this? I don't know. Maybe I'll cancel it. Um and just feeling like you're being nickeled and dimed over and over again. Um, b besides all of that, like there's this whole thing about, you know, they added a utility, like they added a feature that, that not everybody needs. And that's like the only thing that's new in this is that, if, so if you don't need this, it's it's making it worse for you, kind yeah, of. Yeah, if it's tricky because if you're a new user, uh, this is a cheaper way to get into Text Expander because you're paying, you know, X dollars uh, a month. It's like, what is it, four... Uh, what's that? It was it like five bucks a month, or there was a twenty percent discount if you paid for the whole year. Yeah, and ten dollars for a business plan that offered um, ten dollars like per growth. user per, per user per month. So it's cheaper user per month. Yeah. So if you were paying forty five dollars to buy it outright, you know, five dollars a month adds up to sixty, or you get it down to you know closer to forty five um, with the buying it one year at a time. But then you're paying it the year after, the year after, the year after. Um, and uh, you know, one person posted on Twitter. I forget how many seats they'd bought, like a thousand seat license of Tech Expander 5, 
Which cost them, I don't know what they said, like five grand or something like they that. They said like $400. I was kind was of it, dubious about no, was that. 400? I forget. They have so- <laughs> it was something like it sounded ridiculously low. No, I think it was, was 4,000. It was, it was significant, um, but it would have been, uh, I forget, like $20,000 a year or something per 30. It was some absurdly large number for, a, for a, a, that size for the functionality they were going to get. Um, and so I wrote about, you wrote the news. I wrote about um, comparing text expander. Six. You gave him a call. You what's, got some quotes. What's that? You called uh, Greg. Oh, yeah, yeah. I talked because I want to get some details about what the, how they're thinking about it and some of the security issues and so forth. And so I wrote two things. I wrote uh, something about the um, how it fits in as a subscription system, uh, you know, what where it fits in Because it makes the sense ecosystem. for them to go after this enterprise market, you know, like that's where the money is. Yeah, and then also about it as a uh, – I wrote a review of the product and gave it to mice because it, it doesn't – you can't use it locally. I mean, that's the – Fundamental problem is Tech Expander up to Vive is a local product you can export and import snippets from other people, and you can use cloud based sharing to store your own stuff. Or if you were working with somebody else and you wanted to share 100% of your snippets, you could use a shared Dropbox file or folder or something like that, right? So there are ways to get around that, but essentially it's a one user product that you can export and import out of. And Text Expander 6 and related apps on other platforms is subscription only. If you're not logged in, you'd have no access to your snippets. If your subscription ends, if you cancel it, your snippets are gone unless you've exported them. But like even, they do work offline, but you have to like, you know, re-authenticate your account right. every once in a while. Yeah, you don't have to be connected to the internet to use them. But if, you're lo- if your subscription ends, you log out or you're offline for too long a period, which we think is like a month from what they said, um, you don't have access to these expansions anymore. It's basically a cloud-based expansion service with endpoints. And... Uh, they got a lot of, you know, I gave them two mice on the ecosystem out of five. You know, the Texas Spanner 5, I think, got four uh, mice or four and a half, four Oh, mice. yeah. It had always been one of our, our best, you know, reviewed apps. It was, you know, and it's great. every year. And, and it's yeah. like June of last year as they came out with that version and uh, the iOS uh, uh, update as well. And uh, the new ecosystem is just there's no, there's not enough value to people. And I also don't you like the, the fact- snippet editor a little worse. Yeah. If, you, if you're logged, the fact that you don't have any access, like there's no off, there's no- non-subscription access it feels like a taking if you update to it um, all the sharing is done in a browser so like the the brand new like marquee feature the sharing that they're super proud of like it's not even in the app you have to go to a browser to use it yes yeah, so like text expander is now like kind of a web app which is what i think it is it really is a web app with endpoints uh it's a cloud-based app with um it's a, cl- a cloud server app with a with endpoints that include a web app which is where all the control happens the windows version that they have a beta right now is headless you install it and you cannot edit it you have to use the web app if you only have the windows version use the web app to edit snippets uh, which is a weird choice too so in the windows apps and beta so i feel like this felt kind of premature and confusing so breaking news like literally while we're recording this the press release yeah they got a lot of pushback people are like oh this stinks for regular users like you know good for you for going after business customers because that's probably a smart move but as like loyal regular users we feel like this sucks for us yeah, and there's a lot of alternatives too. Uh, there's a type for me, and uh, I keep hearing people a- mention a type or a text. I think it's yeah, called we've a-text. got a we have a review coming that's going to look at other uh, macro style programs, right? I believe there's a roundup. Yeah, that should progress. be in any minute now. <laughs> oh yeah, so we'll have that on Mac. We'll look for that at macworld.com. But so the the press release came out like you know they'd gotten they basically I don't think anybody and they did offer a reduced oh, subscription sorry, yes. price for the first year for existing customers. Right. So if you so own then today they released a press release saying that they're going to make 
that a lifetime subscription price for new cust- for existing customers. So if you're already a text expander user, with a version you can five pay twenty dollars a year instead of um, what was it like 45? forty? Yeah, forty five. I think right. If you paid on a yearly basis, something like that. Yeah. And, so uh, that's like that's like you're paying the upgrade every year. So like if you had it and you were paying the twenty dollar upgrade, and then they, they didn't have a new version like necessarily every year, but now it's like assume you're getting an upgrade every year. And you'll pay us twenty dollars a year and have Texas Twitter. Well, I should say, in their defense, here's the pro. And, and well, let's we'll, I guess finish the press release, and then we'll, we'll go back to this. Is there is some stuff in their defense that I think is why it feels uh, underbaked. Uh, and and they'll also the thing is they had taken off Texas Expander five for Mac and Texas Expander three for iOS. They had removed from uh, sale when they introduced mm-hmm. Text Expander six uh, for Mac and four for iOS. And that was part of the issue because those are perfectly good, relatively recent versions. And it's like, ah, so they're also putting those back uh, for sale. Now, somewhere in the last week. Oh. oh, that's, yeah, I know it's a little, so, so their lifetime update for any current owners of the previous, or I'm sorry. So lifetime discount for the life hacker plan, which is their individual plan for anybody who owned earlier versions of text expander before the new no updates. No one's going to buy that week. then. Right. I know. So, but that's the thing, right. So they, and then they're putting the older version back uh, up for sale and mm-hmm. that's totally cool because that's what, you know, and again, I think they're going to have- Expander 5 for Mac and Tech Expander 3 custom keyboard for iOS. Yeah. And I think they're going to have trouble because now that people have been exposed to alternatives and are concerned about the future of the ecosystem, people who aren't existing owners are maybe not going to pay $45. So they may have, you know, gutted their market too. Uh, which is a shame until they can evolve this new market they're working on. But I think it's I think they should have kept you know, and my take is they should have made Text Expander six have both options and have a personal and a subscription option and cope with the fact that but I mean here okay, so here's the nuance. What they really want to do is they want to do what um Adobe switched to with Creative Cloud. And Adobe got an enormous amount of pushback. And I, I wrote about this in uh, one of my articles about uh, the subscription uh, service approach that a lot of companies are switching to. Like AgileBits did it. AgileBits got essentially zero negative pushback about their move to add a subscription level because the core product remained unchanged. Yeah. And that's it the thing. It was totally optional. And it was like, if you need this, it's here for you. And but if you don't need it, just keep doing what you're doing. Their pricing is kind of cheap. Like, it's five bucks for a month for a family plan. I think, I figure that's the uh, grandfather You're one password here, right? One password, yeah. And yeah. Uh, they have higher rates. They have per user, per month rates for companies. But companies, there's actually a lot of utility in having a totally secure thing that third parties manage that you're not responsible for, but you have absolute control over. Um and it's totally optional. You do not have to subscribe to use the newest features of one password. What AgileBits wanted to do, or sorry, what uh, Smile wanted to do is they wanted to get on the Adobe model where Adobe does as on a continuous release cycle. So Adobe used to be mm-hmm. in this situation where they had they have a lot of really complicated the creative suite. Yeah, it yeah. came out like once a year, and it was huge. But sometimes it, came, it was not even once a year, like once every months, couple of years. Right? Yeah. And it's like it totally affected their corporate profit. It was really difficult internally because they had these. I mean, it's hard when you have like nine. There's a lot of pieces of software that all had mm-hmm. to be updated like on the same day. You know, and like, they all serve different audiences that overlap. So Photoshop, Illustrator, After Effects. Uh, you know, they have Premier, all this software that's. Yeah, and they don't. You know, Lightroom. Like they have a bunch of markets, some of whom use multiple. Piece, you know, in design, different pieces of software and keeping it all coordinated in the same cycle was a nightmare. So I understand that for 
Uh, and then it was so expensive that people would buy it and they would use it forever. Yeah, because like, I would be in like professional magazine update, right. shops that were using like Creative Suite three instead of Creative Suite five because the cost of like upgrading everybody was just like absurd. Yeah, because you'd spend like two thousand dollars sometimes for an update or you want to get a new seat. It was yeah. so expensive. And the upfront, but then so they went monthly and it, it, it they actually did a really great job with it. So the, all the apps are free now. So you, like you get to try everything. They've rolled out a ton of new apps like mobile first apps, kind of like concept apps and they've done a really good job with it they, they just keep adding value to it constantly well and there's a sunk cost an upfront cost you get a new employee in and you're paying sixty dollars a month more for them you're not buying a twenty five hundred dollar suite for them upfront every time someone joins mm-hmm. and it's easier to shift that license or if you do it month by month because you don't know how long someone's going to be I, I was working with someone who um, needed access to indesign so they paid for like two months of creative cloud they yeah paid, you like, can do it just for a project i know which is awesome and so you have out. access to you know a multi-thousand dollar suite so i mean adobe people are still annoyed at adobe for having done it but in over time they they did it right yeah i think it's worked i think it's smart for them it's more reliable but they slipstream like every few weeks i'll get something like hey we've updated this feature we added oh, this constant yeah yeah <laughs> so that's what smile wants to do smile wanted to get on that on board with that where they're um but they only have like the one thing though they don't you have know, any adobe, features it makes yet. sense because they have so well, many different things making up this build, package they could build a lot of interesting tools on top of what they've done but they don't have any yet they don't have i mean the fact that windows client isn't full featured and there's nothing uh compelling about the web app and you have to go to the web like if they had given themselves another six to nine months to actually flesh out a feature set and say here's 14 new things you can do so you know, yeah, compa- this should be a private beta. You, have you used? I've never used customer relationship management software, CRM software. It's never. No. I've never used it. It's a corporate thing, and it's you know multi hundred billion dollar. Yeah, it's like trillion Salesforce dollars. And stuff. And, yeah, Salesforce, and it's a huge thing. Whereas Text Expander, I think, was trying it could to be position like a itself. little mini roll your own. Yeah, kind but of like customer. one because you know snippets and e- but it doesn't do like if you use a CRM system. CRM systems are integrated with email uh, almost always. And so calendars you get, and contacts, and, and you yeah. email from a customer. It gets assigned. There are trouble t- ticket systems like Zendesk that let you do snippets and fill in stuff. So Text Expander, I think, wanted to position itself as like the small business version that's affordable and have a low price, but they're charging something that's actually not far off from the low-end CRM systems that do vastly more. So it's I mean it's frustrating. I think if they had so oh so the reason I think they didn't want to just introduce a new version of the software that had the option is they want to release continuous improvements that are only given to people or subscribers. And Adobe essentially does that. And Agile Bits, because it has a different kind of utility, they chose not to do that. I mean, you can't, mm-hmm. I don't think you can buy standalone versions of almost any Adobe product. You could for a while. Lightroom still. And the, oh, the, um, what, oh, I'm blanking on the name. Elements, Photoshop Elements. Oh yeah, yeah. For, that's for consumers, right? But you can get yeah. $10 a month, you get Lightroom and Photoshop if that's all you need, ten dollars a month. You can still buy Lightroom on its own, weirdly, but I, that that yeah, can't be long. It's for this just, world. I mean, so it's just Agile Bits. I think took the right path for a utility program that has a lot of standalone users, some of whom, and and also to let them expand into an enterprise audience where there is no similar passwords uh, secure document sharing system like they built. There's nothing that's quite like that. That's this cheap. And easy to deploy and cross-platform. But at Text Expander, there's a lot of stuff like Text Expander, and they didn't demonstrate the value proposition, and they cut off their most loyal users from an upgrade path unless they wanted to buy in. So I think they learned a lot, and I hope uh, – but they're still in a point. So now they have two product lines. They have old product, which is totally fine, but who knows if it'll ever get new features, and new product, which is overpriced for the utility it offers, even really with that discount. The lifetime discount is great, but uh, – it's you know doesn't help new users, um, 
if you're in a company and you need to buy another license, you're paying full price. And uh, I don't know. I think it's a half solution. Yeah. I mean, it's it's nice that they they you know responded to to everyone's concerns. Um, and before this had happened, they'd said that the version, um, the last you know standalone version, Texas Bander Five for Mac and Texas Bander Three for iOS. Um, they said that at least on the Mac side, they were going to, you know, keep it working with El Capitan, which, you know, shouldn't be hard because it's been working with El Capitan. And then that they would, um, they had, you know, kind of verbally committed to also updating it to work with the next OS. And I mean, I'd been using Tech Expander 4 forever and it had always handled the new OSs just fine. So, but you never know like what Apple will do. So Apple could, you know, put out the next you know, version OS 10 weed or something and just totally break text expander. So they, they, they said that they would fix it for the next version, but they haven't really, you know, they're making no promises for after that. And it could work just fine for years, but it, it could stop working if Apple updates the software to make it, you know, OS to make it un- incompatible. I know. It all makes me feel like they should have talked to more people first. <laughs> Yeah, well, we're gonna look at we're gonna look at some um, you know alternatives, and um, we've got a freelancer on that. But then I'm really interested in this, so I'm probably gonna try them all out. I'm not really like so the thing with I mean I love Texas Bander and I rely on it, and if I'm ever like at a Mac where I haven't installed it yet, like all of a sudden I'm typing all these weird abbreviations and nothing works, and I'm like oh, I need it back. So it feels really essential for me, but I'm also only scratching the surface of what it can do. Like I'm not really a power user. I do have a couple snippets where like it'll it'll paste in like some HTML code and then move the cursor to you know where I need it to be to paste in like a URL or something. I don't even have it automatically paste in the URL because sometimes it's not on the clipboard. But um, so so I do a couple little things like that, but I'm not using the full power of like fill-ins and you know images and Apple Script, and I'm not using any of that stuff. So some of these like five dollar tech expansion utilities might be just fine for me. So we're gonna try to figure out like you know depending on what kind of user you are because like tech expander is really great, and I I hope that it you know succeeds, and I want Smile to to stick around. And make a ton of money on it, and make great software yeah. forever. I think the but time I just don't know yeah. if I need it anymore. I think the time may have passed it by. To be quite honest, at the price they want to sell it at, like they, you know, forty five dollars for what it offers is probably too much for new users. The upgrade fee uh, makes sense, and um, and the the subscription fee doesn't make sense. I think for almost anybody. So it, you'd have to. It's. I think they're going to find. I think they. I don't know. I think they may have destroyed the product, unfortunately, because I just don't know if they'll get enough people back now that people know the ecosystem. Also, some of the tools you're discussing will import text expander snippet exports. Yeah. So yes, people are saying like I, you know, <clears throat> I fired up a text and all my snippets were already there. Yeah. So, so I mean, you know, I I really like this. Not this is a tough part. You know, being this is the uh, the hard part of being a reviewer. It's like uh, I like the smile people. I think they're great. Uh, um, they're been a good part of the ecosystem and uh, PDF pen pro and pro I think are remain um, there's a lot of competition but those remain strong professional tools that have a lot of utility and are worth the value and I think um, they're trying to figure out how to go forward with this and, and may have messed it up uh, let's do two things quickly I just want to highlight two articles we ran uh, this week at Macworld um, that I think are both uh, both affect us in different ways. We're both interested in the topic is uh, one was uh, these by uh, Jason Snell and Dan Warren, two pieces. Uh, one was 3D Touch. There's been a lot of talk about 3D Touch because the iPhone SE does not come with 3D Touch, and it seemed like all new 
iPhones were going to have it, right? And then not. And, and that's partly the iPhone. Well, they, you know, all new iPhones. Well, that, exactly. Right? This gets you. But, but, <laughs> but like, okay, so Apple. So I, here's, I have a chart in a future article looking at the iPhone SE that I'm working on now. I put together some pricing and feature charts. And the feature chart I went through to look at, like, once a feature is introduced, except for size, everything else it becomes a standard feature of a new iPhone. So you have Retina, you have Touch ID, um, you have you know I, I didn't even go through all the LTE flavors. Like once a certain cellular standard is added, standard is added, all future phones have that plus the you know additional things. The only thing that I think has ever been ste- stepped back from, even with the iPhone SE, because the iPhone SE has the camera um, and the processor of the 6s, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The 6 series. Um, so it's the a front cent- camera is a little weaker. Right, front camera is weaker. Back Just camera a same. So the six, so the six S, uh, the iPhone SE is not a successor to the six S, but it's sort of parallel in most ways. But the biggest way it isn't is the fact that it lacks three uh, uh, D touch. touch yeah. And so that's it's the only time that I can see that a major feature that was added did not extend to all subsequent phones that got all other features. How about that? <laughs> But I think that's why it came up as a as a discussion. A lot of people talking about it because they said, "Well, if you can't get 3D touch in everything, then how useful is it for developers to add it?" I personally, I only use 3D touch um, whether it's on my MacBook where it's barely supported for anything. I have a 12 inch MacBook, um, or on the iPhone 6s, I forget it's there, and I only do it by accident. And they go, "Whoa, what happened? Yeah, why is that thing popping up? Why did the?" It's so blah. weird when it happens like inside apps, like it'll happen inside Spotify. Like I'll be like pressing, you know, pressing something to try to kind of like long press it and it'll 3D touch it. And I'm like, why would oh. I want to 3D touch things? Like, why do I want to peek at a song? Like, what, you can't hear it. When it's you're just trying a song. to move apps around on the springboard, so weird. you have that problem oh, yeah, and you yeah. push and I want, you have to, you can't peek or pop it. You have to like touch it, long touch it. But if you push too hard, then you get the peak mode and then you have to hold. And then after that, so it's actually less efficient if I want to delete or rearrange apps on my home screen. I haven't found it like not knowing what I want to do. Really like for that? I usually guess what I want to do. No, I have to wait. I'll do it. I'll do it as lightly as possible and hold down. And then I always get peak and then I have to wait. And then it Maybe switches. You just have into... like a strong Hulk grip. I'm got like the strongest forearms. I got big fingers. I got big Russian fingers. But the, uh, so I don't, the only program I find it useful in is very funny. Tweetbot for iOS uses 3D touch extremely well. If there's an image in line, you can peek it and it fills it up and then you can release instead of having to go to the tweet and whatever. And if you poke it, is it, or pop, pop it, you pop it, peek, pop. What's the other one? So you peek to look at something, and then you would pop, pop. to pop it open yeah. all the way. So if you pop uh, in Tweetbot, the tweet then becomes uh, the the tweet that you're looking at, and it's it is kind of I, and you can swipe down when you peek it. You can swipe down and reply. They have the best use case that I've seen, and I do like some of the home screen uh, peek options for commands, mm-hmm. but I forget it exists. It's not universally implemented in apps, and it's not useful enough. I like the haptic feedback engine better or the motor and how it's integrated into the newer phones. That is cool, but I do not find 3D touch compelling. Yeah, the quick actions. So, I mean, I was when I did the iPhone SE review, we did a little video and that was one of the things I showed. Like, okay, this phone has all the cool features of the new one except for 3D touch. So I was kind of like, you know, as he was filming me, I was sort of going through the quick actions on the the icons on my 6S and showing all the different 3D touch, 
you know, uh, the, the different quick action menus you get when you 3D touch uh, an app icon. And I guess I hadn't done this for a while, so a lot of my apps had been updated to, to have quick actions. And I was finding a lot of really useful actions, oh. but the problem is that, yeah, like, I don't use them. I just open the app like I've been doing for years now. Like, I haven't been able to retrain myself. And in Jason's column, like, he says that, you know, this could be really big, but we all have to retrain ourselves, and it should be... Um, I mean, you know, de- for developers to be incentivized to put this in, like they, you know, they don't really have a great reason to do it now because it's only for a slice of their users, you know. So it's not something you want to donate, you know, you want to dedicate a lot of time and effort to, right? For like this cool thing that not everyone's going to get to use. That's so I Jason was saying that yeah. the the 3D touch needs to be kind of. Like when it came out and people were like, yeah, it's just like a right click. Like it needs to be a shortcut for a gesture that all the phones have. Like it should be a shortcut for the long press Um, because that way the developers will know that everyone can do it. Like either they do it with a hard press or they do it with a long press, but that they're always going to be able to access like what you build for them um, using that feature. And I think yeah, that's a great point. So the the SE is a little bit of a weird one, like you said. Um, and I think, you know, I'm okay with them not putting 3D Touch in it, mostly because I don't miss it that much. But I mean, just like looking at what I was missing kind of made me like, you know, bum that I was missing it. And I, so if I go back that's to my funny. 6S, I will make an effort to try to use it more because it's kind of nice. Like, you know, if, if you know you want to take a selfie, you can 3D Touch the camera icon and it'll say take selfie and you don't have to you know open it up swipe to photo and then press the front facing camera button I know it's I think the I think the problem is as Jason writes about it, as you're talking about it, it's like there's some really useful stuff but then there's things that actually take me longer because peak and pop exist peak and pop is dumb peak yeah I'm not can, a big fan I and they, just, they were so like in love with peak and peak pop, pop when they rolled pop. this out they were like look you can peek at an email and you don't have to open it and it's like yeah but as soon as you lift your finger off of it it goes away so how am I supposed to read Listen, that with like my thumb in the middle of it this is where I want them to do things with haptics and it's so frustrating is I have the Moto G at the recommendation of our friend Flo Ion from Greenbot and uh, I got the Moto G for testing I really love it and it has uh, like a lot of Androids do it has um, haptic keyboard feedback and oh my god am I more accurate typing on the oh, keyboard I hate that you do I love it it's awesome <laughs> I don't like it well, on this phone, the implementations vary by, you know, there's different hardware, different implementations. It reminds me of the keyboard clicks on iOS that oh. have, like, been, like, they just grate on me. Like, I've hated them since find, day one. Go find Flo, get one of her Moto, see, have her pull out the Moto G or X and see if the X is the same, and try it and see if it drives you nuts. Because I was like, oh, I'm not going to like this. I'm going to turn it off. And I type accurately because it gives you the right sense of hitting the key when you hit the key. Oh. Uh, all right, one more thing we're going to talk about very briefly. Uh, Dan Warren <laughs> wrote about uh, – we're almost done, folks. I swear to God. Uh, no news this week. Um, <laughs> the pencil and hit. Dan Warren wrote something <laughs> no interesting. No news, so we just have a really long podcast. We'll, we'll bring him on. But to ta- we love you, yeah, we'll, so we have a lot of things to tell you. We're going to bring Dan on to talk about uh, various things, I'm sure. And, and this should be one of them. We'll, we'll just hint it. Is he talked about uh, if the iPad um, – Pro, uh, that the pencil should uh, integrate with the iPad Pro for handwriting recognition. And I, I think he's absolutely right. I think Apple resisted that because they still have the pain of the Newton hanging over them. But It's hard. It, but, you know, here's the thing. After doing a lot of research into machine learning in the last couple of years, that it's amazing the Newton worked at all. It's amazing to me, given the state of the technology back then, that anything worked in terms of digitizing and recognizing even the palm language for where you do specific stuff. Like even the fact that that worked is extraordinary, giving processor power and the state of machine learning in those days. Now 
uh, you can, you know, training works so much better. The algorithms for repeat repetitive things, you should be able to train and have super accurate handwriting recognition for you, not anyone's handwriting ever in any form, but Mm -hmm. you would do a little bit of training. It wouldn't be that you'd write a few paragraphs. That would be kind of fun. They could make it into a little game. Exactly. I mean, which is what, you know, these (laughs) Write this word, write that word, write this word, and then like write a word. Let me try to guess what it is. And there could be a little game you play with your iPad. And remember when you used to have to do that for dictation, you'd have to read paragraphs of text with old dictation software because the recognition was really bad. Machine learning improved that to the extent that you have Siri, where Siri learns from you, but Siri also out of the box is very good for most people. And um, although I had this very funny thing, you'll see a review come up soon at Macworld of uh, TV Maps. It's an uh, Apple TV app that lets you put uh, MapKip apps on the TV. And it's mm-hmm. uh, really fun. It's a simple app. I really like it because it just does one thing really well. Um, but my eight-year-old, is he's like, oh, I want to look at Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world. So he's using the Siri remote. And he's like, Burj Khalifa, Burj Khalifa. And it's coming up with ridiculous matches. And finally, it comes up with something that sounds like, you know, Birch caliper or something and apples so the siri gets it wrong but MapKit's uh recognition against place names gets it right and we were finally able to get burj khalifa but like did you mean burj khalifa like yes that's why i keep saying but i watched an eight-year-old screaming burj khalifa into a remote is a pretty good sign all right, folks. We'll yeah, let you so go. I guess there is what? some handwriting recognition software on the Mac. If you plug right. in a graphics tablet, right. you get like ink, ink or well. Inkwell, I think ink it's well. called. It's a hidden uh, control panel. only shows up if you plug in a tablet that's capable of doing yeah. handwriting. So uh, he's saying which, bring it over to the iOS side because, you know, not everyone is very artistic. And yeah, at first, like, you know, the pencil is really, really cool, right? But at first, I didn't think it would be a big deal for me because I don't really draw and I'm not a designer no, but and so you know I, I was like dorking around with it but I wasn't <laughs> doing anything like serious with it that I thought would be like you know worth a hundred dollars and like buying a new iPad and all that so that's kind of where Dan is too um I did the the iPad that we reviewed I got to pick up in Cupertino and when you pick up review units in Cupertino they give you a little demo and it was really interesting like which um apps Apple like chose to highlight in their demo to me and they weren't Apple apps. So they showed off, I mean, so it's the iPad Pro, right? So they showed off Microsoft Office and one of the PC World guys had been, you know, joking with me that um, there was a thing, I think we talked about it, where um, Office requires, the Office apps for mobile, for tablets require a Office 365 subscription. Oh, yeah. If the tablet that you're using the app on is more than like 10.1 inches. So if you have the little iPad Pro, you can use the Office apps for free. And if you have the big iPad ah. Pro, you need an Office 365 subscription. And one of the PC World guys is like, you should ask Apple if they're going to like subsidize like an Office 365 subscription for big iPad Pro owners. And I'm like, okay, sure. If I want to be like laughed out of Cupertino, I will ask them that question. But then I get to the demo and they're like, check out all these sweet Office apps. And I was like, oh yeah, did you guys notice that you actually don't even need a subscription if you use them on the little one versus the big one? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, ha ha ha. And this guy at PC World wanted me to ask you if you were subsidizing them. Blah, ha ha ha. And we all had like a good laugh. Um, But then on the handwriting side, they showed me an app called GoodNotes 4, 
which is awesome. And I was like, this is making the pencil like rocking my world, right? Because I don't draw, but I like to take notes in meetings and I usually bring like a legal pad. Sometimes I bring my computer, but I mean, at the Apple meeting, I was literally taking notes with a pen on a legal pad. And he was like, oh man, you should check out this app because like the same notes you're taking here, it's like you set it up as a notebook, but there was like a, it, it kind of splits it into two things. So you can, um, you have like a blown up sort of like part of the paper that you're writing in and then it repositions that over the page so you can be writing like you know your big stylus writing you know how when you write with a stylus you end up writing a lot bigger and then it would shrink that down and insert what you wrote into like the spot on the page so you don't have to you would just keep writing and writing and writing and in this one box and it would put your words up where they would go in the page so they would be like a normal size and it would just stick them in there and you would just write in this infinitely scrolling thing it was so cool and then it doesn't convert what you wrote into like editable text like you couldn't just copy and paste it all into a word document and go from there but it was kind of like OneNote and Evernote where it could you could search for things so that was pretty cool and I mean it's not the same thing so yeah I could think he wants like just like straight up like text to you know handwriting to text where you're going to get right. you know a bunch of type that you can then just go in and edit with a word processor but, but they could wire that in i mean they could have text you know text to type kit um that would yeah. let people uh, build it in all these different ways and do stuff like that without the app makers having to do it i mean you know this yeah, is yeah they could give developers some really cool tools to do that without having to do it themselves and then if it doesn't you know work seamlessly like they don't you know everyone doesn't go like ah ha ha it's like the newton all over again because well, it's like you know it's the developers but fault. look at what happened in OCR. I mean, this is the quiet revolution. And again, it's uh, in this case, it's not, I don't think it's machine learning. It's actually a different approach that got much, much better. Uh, machine learning takes you closer for like more arbitrary stuff. Although, I, and I shouldn't say that. I don't know. OCR improvements may be the result of, uh, of these improvements in machine learning that are now baked in. But I use PDF Pen, which we discussed previously. And I also use a, a Fujitsu, a Fujitsu it's hard to say with braces. Fujitsu ScanSnap is the name of it. And uh, a document feeder that does double-sided scanning, I especially use it at tax time to scan a million pieces of paper. And uh, both of them, uh, PDF Pen has built-in OCR, and the Fujitsu can uh, pipe into uh, Acrobat. And I forget now that there was a time when you scanned a document and you didn't get a full, almost perfect OCR rendition of it. So mm-hmm. that's just part of my workflow now is like, oh, I have a 1099 from three years ago. I search in Spotlight and it comes up. I don't have to go through like piles of scan stuff and look at images. And I feel like we have the same revolution that could happen for handwriting, um, not scanning, but like using, a, you know, whether an Apple Pencil, which would be nice because that's tied into a system. But even a stylus on an older iPad, it should be able to do that because you don't necessarily need all that information. You just need to be able to translate it. It's just more likely that it would be a flagship feature. Uh, all right. I think we've uh, given people enough to think about for the week. And um, <laughs> there'll be a test <laughs> next week, dear listeners, if you've made it this far. Uh, the secret word is banana. <laughs> so thanks for listening, Susie. Great to talk to you again. Great to talk to you as always. A pleasure. And this I've been, I have been and remain. Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at this fine publication, Macworld. And it has been episode 503 of the Macworld podcast for April 13th, 2016. You can find us online, of course, at macworld.com, where you can leave comments on this podcast episode, which we do listen, as you can tell, because we talk about them. You can email us at podcast at macworld.com and find us on the Twitter, SFSOOZ, that's S F S O O Z like Z. 
for Susie and Glenn F, G-L-E-N-N-F like Frank for me. Uh, and we will be back to talk with you more next week. <laughs>